Well, we're back into our series of hot topics. I don't know what week this is. We've, we've kind of fumbled the ball a couple of, uh, couple of weeks, but we're back into that particular series where we're talking about different issues, different topics that have concern for us. <clears throat> uh, one topic that is uh, rarely discussed in any practical or meaningful way in church is that of human sexuality. Usually um, what happens is that we talk uh, about what we must not do, which is, which is good. There are many things that we must not do, we must avoid. Um, we talk about divorce. Or we leave it at the point where we say that, you know, sex is a beautiful thing, blessed by God, and we say no more, everybody should go home and figure it out on their own. However, within society, no other subject is more exploited than sex. No subject is more discussed or debated than human sexuality. I mean, what do you think the gay issue is about? It's about sex. How people have sex. Movies are rated by their sexual content. You ever go to the bookstore lately and look at the section on what they call psychology or health? Most of those books are about sex. You'd think, you know, they'd run out of ideas, you know, <laughs> book after book after book. But somehow there's a tremendous appetite for knowledge about, opinions on, depictions of the activity of sex. I believe as Christians we need to understand what the Bible also teaches, not just about marriage, although the Bible does teach us and gives us what we understand about marriage. But I think we also sometimes need to study what the Bible teaches about sex, period. So if you came tonight thinking I was going to talk about marriage, well, I will in a very indirect way. This lesson is about sex and human sexuality. That is something that is sensitive for you. Please understand that. The objective here is to learn, to understand. We'll try to stick to the Bible uh, for this particular study. I also want to draw some practical conclusions that are not directly stated by the Bible, but naturally are deduced from the sum of its teachings. Again, this inference business. You, know, you can't get away from this inference business. Command, example, inference. So important. Actually, most of our teaching comes from what we infer, what we deduce. What the Bible teaches. No different about sex. The Bible teaches many things about sex, some of the things we have to deduce, some of the things we need to draw conclusions. And hopefully by the end we'll get an image, a picture of what is wholesome sexuality, you know, wholesome, healthy human sexuality as it is defined by God's Word. Well, let me just start by saying a few kind of, you know, statements, practical statements. Just because we have a sex drive doesn't mean we understand sexuality. Just because we feel like having sex doesn't mean we understand. Just because we know how to make love doesn't mean we know how to love. Big difference. You see, many of us enter into marriage and the sexual relationship included in marriage with what we have been taught concerning sex. Therefore, if our sex life many times is not satisfying, or we have problems 
with human sexuality, the first place to find a solution is not how we do it or how often we have sex, but rather what we think about sex. We need to examine what we have been taught about sex long before we examine the actual mechanics of human sexuality. Now, when we talk about sex, we usually feel uncomfortable. The fact that I've had to make a preface, you know, settle us down. I was standing out in the hallway, and everybody was giggling, you know, oh, we're going to talk about sex in church, you know, oh boy. Oh. You know, we get a little giggly when we talk about the subject. We're a little embarrassed sometimes. Maybe some are uncomfortable. And I think this is due to the fact that we have been taught certain things about human sexuality. Much of our thinking has been formed by religious attitudes. And many of these religious attitudes were formed by, not the Bible, but by early theologians, and I refer back to the Middle Ages and the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Age, who themselves were influenced by Greek philosophers. A lot of those ideas are the ideas that we still hang on to us today. Now, way back then, the Middle Ages, Catholic theologians, their idea of uh, the origin of man came from a lot of philosophical ideas from the Greeks. And the Greeks believed that man uh, was made of flesh, which was bad, and spirit, which was good. And sex, because it was part of the flesh, was associated with being bad. This basic idea evolved, if you wish, and within Roman Catholic um, Roman Catholic theology of the time, this thinking and this teaching over centuries spilled over into the uh, Protestant uh, Reformation, a lot of Protestant thinkers, and produced a certain mental attitude which many times have we have inherited without verifying if our attitude is really biblical. In other words, you know, there's a vestige of a lot of old ideas which are not biblically based, that we carry around with us, but we cannot verify from the scriptures. So, let's look, first of all, at some sexual myths that uh, exist, that some of us, many of us, may be laboring with because of some of the things that we have been taught. First one is the idea that sex is basically a bad thing. It's a bad thing, and only tolerated by God within marriage. Tolerated by God. Again, I was brought up in the Catholic Church, maybe some of you were also, and I remember clearly this idea, you know, sex, boy, just a bad thing, bad news. And thank God we have marriage, you know, so we can kind of hide it in marriage. That's one myth that exists. Another one is that uh, celibacy is the higher way. There's another myth. Celibacy, it was taught at the time, was the way that we really ought to be. And uh, this gave rise to the monastic movement and the celibate priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church. The idea that celibacy really is the best way. Marriage is just, well, it's a notch down. It's a vocation, but, you know, if you can't be celibate, well, you might as well go. Another myth is that women are evil. I said it was a myth. I'm going to take names of all those men who are laughing at Of course, along with the idea that sex was bad, came along with it the idea that women somehow were innately evil. 
because they were considered the source of this sexual thing. They were the target of this sexual thing. And because of this, many of them were abused. As a matter of fact, in the 17th century, many women wore black because of this very reason. Sex was bad, and because women, you know, they're the ones that have the children, and they represent fertility and sexuality, somehow they're bad too. Sex is only for procreation. Sex within marriage was only good if one was producing children. Now, I come from a place, I mean, one generation removed, in my own family, this is what was believed. Fifty years ago, people in my family believed. And I've talked with them, you know, recent last few years, we talked about this, and they tell me how it was in the old days. But it was a law. I mean, the, the, the clergyman up in the pulpit was teaching this, that every time a married couple had sex, if they weren't allowing themselves to have a child, in other words, if they weren't having sex with the opportunity to have a child, it was a sin. Could you imagine the burden that people lived under? No birth control. Sex is only for procreation. Sex should be in the dark. I mean, many times it is in the dark, but that's where it should be, in the dark. Attitude towards sex should be secretive, in the dark. We just don't talk about that thing. We just do that. That's that animal thing that we do. It's in the dark. We hide it and make sure the children, oh, you know, they don't find out about it. It's another myth. The ultimate result of all this type of mythology about sexuality is that people felt guilty and still do. And they feel ashamed when trying to deal openly with sexual matters. And false guilt produces frustration and anger. And when this anger and frustration is repressed, it has a tremendously negative result on people and especially on their sex life. For women... This type of repression produces sexual indifference and frigidity, rejection of their partner as a way of punishment. Repressed feelings come out as anger towards the partner. Inability to be satisfied in all the related problems that come with that. In men, the same idea, all these repressed feelings develop because of false ideas uh, produce the inability uh, or rather the indifference and rejection of the partner, impotency and, and, and uh, uh, promiscuity, the ever-going or, or the never-ending search for satisfaction through multiple partners and experience. So what we have learned about sex will determine largely what our sex life will be like. You are what you think, especially when it comes to sex. Many of us, because of pagan ideas or because of false ideas that we have been taught, see sex as a cause for shame, even within marriage. You know what happens then? Guilt plus shame equals poor sex. These false ideas produce false guilt and anger, which if not expressed honestly manifest themselves in frustration and poor sexual development within marriage.
If I were to give you a brief history of sex, this is what it would probably look like. By the 4th century, the idea of original sin was taught. You know the idea of original sin? That's the idea where Adam's sin is passed on physically through heredity to the next generation and so on down the line. And since this sinfulness is passed on physically and human sexuality is the vehicle that moves the generations forward, there must therefore be something wrong with human sexuality. By the 17th century, sex was just a dark and dirty thing, not to be discussed. This idea took hold that people in the name of religion were twisting themselves so totally out of shape when it came to this particular topic. Of course, people eventually revolted against this oppressive and false view, but as is often the case with human beings, they went completely to the other extreme, and we arrive in the 20th century, and we get these ideas about sex. Somewhere around the 50s, you know, after the First World War and all, all the way up to the 60s, we began with the idea that sex actually should be fun. You know, it's an activity to enjoy if we can just loosen up. Playboy magazine starts its philosophy, sexualizes everything. Rock and roll sings about the glories of free sex. Much of the songs, if you remember, sounded innocent enough, but the writers of those songs, you know, were very sexually oriented. By the time we get to the 70s, the idea is that sex is free. Free love. Sex with whomever, whatever, and whenever you want it. The sexual revolution. You know, it swings one way for a long time. Boy, it starts swinging completely the other way. By the time we get into the 80s, this group here has grown up. They don't totally uh, uh, do away with their sexual ideas, but now they're raising their kids. Now they've come up with their philosophy, sex is for the mature. We need to be ready. We need to experiment. Oh, the 80s were a very serious time sexually. You know, 30-something, middle-aged angst. Everybody sitting around contemplating their, their navel and thinking about sex in very serious manners. And of course, what are the 90s? Tell me, give me the word. Safe sex. Now we're into safe sex because of age. Never mind, you should be ready. You have to be careful not to kill yourself as far as sex is concerned. Now, these ideas have truth to them. There's a kernel of truth in these ideas. For example, sex is sinful when it's outside of marriage. Um, sex is dirty when presented as pornography. When it's presented in a base way, yes, it is unclean. Uh, sex is fun, of course. When enjoyed by legitimate marriage partners, it's wonderful fun. Sex is free, but the thing that people don't understand is that it's, ex excuse me, it's exclusive. It's freely enjoyed, but by only two people within marriage. Yes, sex is for the mature, and the mature are determined by the ability to make a commitment for life within marriage. So yeah, sex is for the mature, and maturity is demonstrated by making a commitment with another person to live as husband and wife. And sex is safe, because sex between faithful married partners is absolutely safe. It always has been. It always will be. 
Well, let's uh, take a look at uh, a little bit of background there. Let's take a look at what God says about sex. God's ideas. If you have your Bible, you can follow along if you want. The Bible says a lot of things about sex. It is not. It says, as I say, it says a lot of things about marriage, but it does refer to human sexuality. For example, the Bible says, or God says, that sex is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Let's read the Song of Solomon, chapter 7. I'll read it for you. You follow along if you want. Listen to me. Now, this man is talking to his bride-to-be. All right? He says to her, How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like the Tower of Ivory. Your eyes are like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. I always thought that was kind of strange. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. Maybe they were into big noses in those days. Which faces towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel. Carmel was a mountain. And the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. He's wild about you. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. Is this guy in love or what? That's a very, very sensual passage. He is talking about his bride-to-be, the woman that he loves, and he, he describes her body. Let's face it, he hasn't talked about her mind yet. He talks about her body. He's saying, you're beautiful. You excite me. I love you. I'm going to take you in my arm. I'm going to make mad love to you. That's what he's saying here. Sex is beautiful. You realize the Holy Spirit wrote this? So, it's not just a a throwaway line to say sex is beautiful. It is. God says that it is. The Holy Spirit says. We could read more, but I picked that passage because it was so graphic. God also says that there is no shame or guilt within marriage when when referring to sex. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, For this cause a man shall shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. There is no shame. In human sexuality. You ever notice, if you continue to read Genesis, the shame came after the sin. Before the sin, nudity was a symbol of innocence. After sin, nudity became a symbol of guilt. That's why we all feel embarrassed to be naked. Because it reminds us that we are sinners. But not at this time. God also says that sex is his idea, not man's idea. Sex is not something that man invented and foisted upon God. 
Sex is God idea, God's idea. Proverbs chapter 5. You ever think about that? You married people, think about that. The enjoyment, the pleasure, the excitement, the adventure that you have experienced in your sex life was designed by God. He knew what He was doing when He created you. Every feeling you ever had, God knew you were going to have it. In Proverbs chapter, chapter 5, <clears throat> Solomon says again, speaking about married love, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Solomon is saying, be passionate. Let your wife be the one that excites you all the days of your life. This is God's idea that we should be in love, that we should be excited, that we should enjoy ourselves sexually, was originally God's idea. Every perverted and twisted thing that's been made out of it, man has done. But originally, it was a great idea, and of course continues to be. Here's one that I think the men always appreciate. God commands regular sex. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. Let me read it again. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourself to prayer and come back together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When he says, come back together, he doesn't mean to come back together to have breakfast together. He's talking about human sexuality. God commands married people to have an active sex life. And don't let too many things interrupt that life, Paul says. And if you do interrupt a normal, frequent, mutually satisfying sex life, make sure that you both agree on it. And make sure that the purpose for your separation is high-minded and noble for something that has to do with prayer or, or spiritual focus. And don't let it be too long, he says, because you're human and you'll be tempted. Come back together again as soon as you can. God commands all of us, to have regular sex. Not to use it as a negotiating device. One partner with another. That's not in God's plan. Sin causes guilt, not sex. So many of us feel guilty just about sex. The only reason we should ever feel guilty is because we sin. Not because we have sex. Chapter 13, verse 4 of Hebrews says, Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. God will judge those who violate His word concerning sex, not those who have sex legitimately within marriage. Sex has no age. Sex had no age. I'll tell you a story. I remember when I was uh, a young... My only excuse is that I was younger. <clears throat> And my mother, uh, my mother's been a widow for many years and she was talking and so on and so forth and she said that 
some somebody in our family, I forget, you know, a cousin or something or an aunt, was getting married again. She was a widow. She was like 74 and she had met somebody who was 78 or 79 and they had really gotten along and this wonderful older couple was going to be married. And of course, in my young, brash, ignorant way, I went, oh, how disgusting. She was so angry at me. Boy, she told me there's no age for love. Love has no age limit. She took me to task, and, and rightly so. And rightly so. Love has no age limit. When you read the story of Abraham and Sarah, do you think it was a miracle that they had Sarah? How do you think their child was born? Immaculate conception? You know? Was it a virgin birth? No. They had sex. And she conceived. And why do you think she had sex? Because they were attracted to each other. Because God blessed them. Made them lovely in each other's eyes. There's no age for love. No age for expressing that love sexually. And then some decisions belong to us. Uniquely belong to us. Uh, How, when, how often whether we do it to conceive, whether we do it simply for pleasure's sake, some decisions belong to us. Because the Bible doesn't speak to these issues. You know, the human body was designed that for a woman that, that she could have a child every year for 20 years. Some women are going, oh my aching bad idea. I said, theoretically, the human body was designed that a a woman could conceive and have a child every year for 20 years. And where I come from in Quebec, 50 years ago, they were having families. One woman was having 13, 16 kids. My mother comes from a a family of 11, and they were medium-sized. But you see, God also gave us a brain. He gave us a body that could produce children, but he also gave us a brain, so we would know when to quit. Some things, we use our own judgment. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us how. We figure out how. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us when. We do it whenever. There's nothing in the Bible that says once, twice a week, ten times a month, once every two... Nothing that tells us this. We figure this out for ourselves. And we also figure out for ourselves the purpose of our our, uh, intimate relations. Is it just to say, I love you? Is it just to say you're important to me? Is it just to say I'm hurting and I need you to be close? Or is it to say let's start our family or let's continue our family? All legitimate reasons. These decisions belong to us. Now let's just summarize some of the things that we've said. God invented and intended sex to be experienced freely, joyfully, within marriage all through life. Sin. And not sex is the only cause for guilt. And finally, some things God leaves us to decide for ourselves. And no one has the right to make rules for us. All right. I'll talk about something else. Sex therapists tell us that the biggest problem that couples have with sex is not mechanics or frequency or even looks. They tell us the biggest problem with sex is communication. Communication, that's the big problem. 
The main sex organ of the body, and I'm going to point to it now, so don't be embarrassed. The main sex organ of the body is the brain. That's the major sex organ, the brain. It is this part of the body that controls feeling and desire and enjoyment of pleasure. It is the brain, or rather, if the brain is not stimulated, if the brain is not sexualized, then the other body parts cannot function properly. So the best way to stimulate the brain is to communicate. The best way to improve sexuality within a marriage is to learn how to communicate more effectively about sex. Let me repeat that. The best way to improve sexuality in a couple is to improve the way that we communicate about sex. Now, one major problem in many marriages is that there are things that we wished our partners knew about us. Because you know what? It's no secret. We're all different. We all have different needs. We all have different ways of expressing ourselves sexually. Everybody's different. The problem is we hope that our partner knows, or we wish they did, or we wish they would figure it out. But because of shame and guilt and fear and anger and ignorance, we can't communicate our feelings to them. We stay locked up. We hope that they'll guess, and they don't guess, and we end up becoming unfulfilled sexually and miserable. I'm not painting, you know, everybody's got a problem, but you know, um, I've been preaching about uh, 13, 14 years, and, and seen a lot of people, a lot of married couples, and when it comes to human sexuality, you know, if that's the problem in the marriage, boy, nine times out of ten, it's communication that's the problem. Because we all kind of know how to function sexually. We don't know how to talk sexually. We don't know how to communicate, how to say what it is that is on our heart. And for that reason, we remain unfulfilled. And it's a godly thing to be fulfilled sexually. God wants us to be fulfilled sexually because that builds a strong marriage. I'm going to finish this lesson tonight by saying out loud some of the things that couples find hard to say for various reasons. Obviously, I'm talking to married people. Single people who are here can learn the theory and can understand, but I'm really talking to married people. Now, I don't say these things to offend you or embarrass you. I say these things rather to open up lines of communications between couples who are bound by false ideas and fear. I encourage you, if you hear something that strikes home for you, remember it. There's something you need to communicate to your partner that you've never been able to. Write it down on a note and slip it under the pillow. Put it under the coffee cup. It's amazing how people, once that first step is taken, it's amazing how you know the dam breaks and everybody begins to talk and really share. So here are some of the things that I've picked up in books and uh, counseling sessions. Key phrases that people want to say to each other but they can't. Communication is the key. Tell me how to please you. Guide me so that I will know in the future. We think that our partner knows what we're thinking. We think that our partner knows how we feel. We think our partner is going to figure out by osmosis what, is, what it is that we need. But it doesn't work like that. 
Tell me how to please you. Guide me this time so I will know in the future. How about this one? I want to make love just for fun. Just for fun. Just for the sheer pleasure and exhilaration and joy of it. Have you ever prayed after you made love and say, Oh God, that was great, thank you. Have you ever said that? You should. The Bible says we should give thanks in all things. If we can go to McDonald's and say thank you for a Big Mac, why can't we say thank you after having great sex? You know, something's wrong here. <laughs> something's terribly wrong. What's wrong with this picture? How about this one? Seeing your body excites me. Don't hide it from me. It's amazing. We spend our, 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 you know, we grow up, grow up in the church, we grow up, you know, fine Christian parents, you know, we're modest, we're modest, this is good, you know, I don't know it, OC, have to chase those girls down, get them to get dressed properly, and so on and so forth, we're modest, we're modest. Then we get married, we're modest, we're modest, we're modest. It's okay after you get married. It's all right. Paul says the body belongs to the other. The body belongs to the other. We need to stop this, you know, from the bathroom to behind the drapes to behind the bureau, under the covers, lights out, got your little flashlight. Uh-uh. Seeing your body excites me. Don't hide it from me. Don't hide it from me. Please don't force me to do what I can't do just yet. Recognize that Human sexuality requires growth, maturity. It requires time. It's like spaghetti sauce, you know? You can't make good spaghetti sauce unless you cook it for six hours. Well, if spaghetti sauce takes six hours, imagine human sexuality. Sometimes, you know, one partner is over here and the other partner is over here. It's an act of love to be able to say, hey, I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you. I won't force you to do anything that you can't do or you don't understand or you feel a little resi- uh, you know, uh, a little resistance there. Don't force me to do what I, I, I can't do just yet. On the other side of the coin, don't say never to me. Let's discuss. I will never. Oh, I, just, I will never do that. Don't please don't say never to me. Just say whoa, maybe whoa, hoo hoo, time. Let's talk about this. Let me tell you how I feel about that. If I have a kind of a moral problem here with doing this, or I, maybe I'm just embarrassed, or I, I feel ignorant, I don't know how to do that. Don't say never to me. Let's discuss it. Here's one. I wish you would initiate sex for a change. It makes me feel wanted. It makes me feel desired. Remember when you were kids? Remember when you were younger, you had this terrible crush on somebody else, but it didn't come back the other way? Imagine living a whole life like that. This goes both ways. Number seven. Break your schedule. Break your routine to be with me. This makes me feel important. Come home for lunch. (laughs) Show me that I'm important. Wanting to have sex with me doesn't tell me that I'm important. But giving up something or breaking your routine or something in order to be alone with me so that perhaps you can win me over, that makes me feel important. 
How many couples have I heard, you know, the man says, well, you know, unless the dishes are washed and all the kids' stuff is put away and the ironing is folded and then the teeth are brushed and the... And then maybe we'll have sex. Have sex in the laundry room. That's what this is. Number eight. Let's try something new in our sex life. Let's explore together. Let's talk about what we'd like to do. It's amazing. Those people here who are, you know, have a long marriage, you know, 25-year marriage and are happy and so on and so forth. You understand what I'm talking about here. Some of you younger couples might not. There's this terrible myth that goes around, and I hear, even to this day, I hear it, you know, well, you know, the guys are talking, well, you know, first couple of years of marriage, it's really exciting, so on and so forth, and after that, boy, you need a hobby. Not true. Because if God designed marriage and commanded that we remain faithful for life, that means he's also provided for a lifetime commitment and allowing human sexuality to be something that we can enjoy for a lifetime, but it requires a little bit of imagination, a little work. Let's try something new and different. Let's explore together. A couple more. I said to the song leader, I'll probably go over tonight because I've got a few of these things. Almost done. How about this one? Be kinder to me. Every time you are unkind to me, it makes it harder for me to desire you. Doesn't that hit home? Every time you make me feel foolish, every time you laugh at me, every time you cut me off, every time you're sarcastic, every little chip and nick and cut that you make day in and day out makes it very hard for me to want you. Try to understand what stimulates me. Try to understand what turns me on. For men, try to understand this about your wives. Try to understand that emotional stimulation comes before physical stimulation. A lot of men, unfortunately, think that women are merely men with women's bodies. They haven't been clued into the fact that women are actually different than men. Try to understand, man, that the the best sex happens when a wife's emotional needs are taken care of on a daily basis. You cannot buy sex at the last minute with flowers and candy. It's a cumulative thing. Take time to allow passion to rise. Express love and affection before and during and after for a continuous and enjoyable sex life. Men, try to understand this about your wife. And women, try to understand this about your husband. Try to understand that the accumulation of seminal fluid within men acts as an ongoing internal stimulation. That's medical. Men have a strong sex drive, not because they're sex fiends, but because God created them in this way. Women, try to understand that men are visually stimulated by the eyes. Every Madison Avenue advertiser has figured this one out a long time ago. 
Every time I go to a mechanic, I see this three-foot poster of a girl with a little string bikini and hardly anything covering her, her chest, and she's holding a wrench in her hand. What? You know, what's the point here, folks? What's the point? Wives, you need to take advantage of this. Don't let anybody else take advantage. Wives have a right to take advantage of the idea that men are visually stimulated and usually they're the last ones to take advantage of it. And every stranger who's selling a, a Coca-Cola or a, or a wrench or something, they have access. It ought to be the other way. The key, so interesting, the key is to find a balance between his needs and your ability to meet those needs. God is so wise in that he has created men and women in such a way that there has to be mutual compromise in order to have mutual satisfaction. Number 11, almost done. How about this? I appreciate it when you give yourself willingly to me even when it's inconvenient for you. That's agape. I mean, sex is eros, but when you give sex willingly, even when it's inconvenient, even when you don't feel like it, that eros becomes agape. Sacrificial. Please take care of your body. Don't let yourself go, because your body belongs to me. If you abuse it, you rob both of us of its pleasure. Tell me you enjoy our sex life. I need to hear it. Ten years later, thirty years later. Tell me. Tell me that I'm beautiful. Tell me that I'm handsome. Tell me that I know how to make love. Tell me that, you've, uh, that I've satisfied you. Tell me. I need to know. Do you know, um, when, when, when you interview someone in a counseling uh, session, uh, a man, for example, who has cheated on his wife, and you ask him, what was it about this other woman? And sometimes this other woman is nothing. She's nothing compared to the wife, you know? I mean, looks-wise. And you say, what happened here? You know what You know what the, the most common thing is? She told him how wonderful he was. How great he was. Finally, tell me you love me. I need to hear it all. My wife and I are in love. Stronger now than ever. Of course, I call her three times a day and ask her what she does. I tell her I love her ten times a day. She tells me she loves me ten times a day. I think that might have something to do with it. You know what I mean? We need to understand that sex is God's gift to us for our pleasure, for our comfort, and for our security within society. We need to abide, of course, by God's instructions regarding fidelity and respect. Absolutely. We also need to tell each other honestly and tenderly what we need, what we feel, and what we want sexually with our partner without feeling guilty, without being afraid, or being ashamed. Nothing stimulates or revives a sex life more than open communication about your well, that's a lesson on human sexuality. We could do several more on that, but I wanted to share those ideas uh, with you. i tell you a little story. Uh, I, I taught this lesson once before uh, in Edmond, and, and after, the, uh, after the lesson, uh, 
an older brother came forward and he, his face was really set. You know what I'm saying? Oh boy, I'm going to get it now. You know, as I really put my foot in it. And he came up to me and said, there's only one thing wrong with that lesson, Brother Mike. And I said, what's that? He says, you didn't give us any homework. So tonight I give you homework. Love each other. <laughs> Love each other. And talk to each other about your intimate relationship. Now we have a song of invitation. You know, we have to make a bridge. I don't know how to make a bridge from this to an invitation, but uh, <laughs> so let's just say that we're going to sing a song of invitation. And if there are those among us tonight that have particular needs for prayer, uh, for repentance' sake, uh, uh, perhaps from this morning uh, you, you've, you've heard the message concerning baptism and you need more information, or you want to be baptized. Uh, even though we talked on a completely different topic tonight, it is still proper for you to come forward at this time and seek out the ministry of the elders of the church uh, on your behalf as we stand and as we sing our song of invitation. 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 Song of invitation.